This morning's scripture reading comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 13. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, and you have forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline, God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and life? Our fathers discipline us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. This is God's word. We're beginning a new series uh, on the Advent uh, as we head into uh, March into Christmas. And, and the Advent uh, is a Latin phrase talking about the coming of Christ. And what we're doing is we're going to be tying the end of the book of Hebrews uh, with this Advent uh, season uh, of our year. The book of Hebrews was written to people who were beaten down. They were beaten down with difficulties. And, and they've been suffering so much that they were getting ready to give up. And Hebrews chapter 12 uh, is the climax of this, uh, of this uh, letter to encourage uh, people who've been suffering. Now, scholars say today, we have no concept of heaven. And because we have no concept of heaven, we have no real hope in our lives. We have no real values. We have no values, no core beliefs that we cling to. And so Sunday mornings have really become more just about our children, our children's sports programs and shopping and golf and our, and our diversions. And so we're running from substance and we're running from thinking. We don't really care about theology. What's the downside? Scholars say, commentators across the board, they say that we become soft as a culture. And we have no moral compass in our lives, with no inner compass. And as a result, because we have no inner compass, because we become soft as a culture, we have really no way of dealing with suffering. And yet, suffering is inevitable. How do you deal with it? We need to learn from the author of Hebrews. What do we learn from Hebrews chapter 12? There are four things. One, suffering is training. Two, suffering is seeing. Three, suffering is discipline. And four, how do you endure it? Training, seeing, discipline, and then the power to endure it. First, suffering is training. In verse one, the author says, let us run the race that is marked out for us. What is marked out for us? It's a race. 
In the Greek, that word, the word for race, is the word agon, which is where we get the word agony. So, in other words, who's going to run this race? Who's going to run? Who's going to endure this agony that's been marked out? And the author says, we will. It's us. We're going to agonize. We're going to run this race. Verses 1 to 4, the author's saying, life is like a race. Life is a struggle. Life is strain. Life is agony. Life is pain. If you look at Hebrews chapter 11, just before we get into this passage, you see a cloud of witnesses. And the one thing that ties every one of these witnesses together is what? Their lives have been marked with tremendous suffering. Tremendous suffering. And through that suffering, they've become great. In fact, if you look at the, towards the end of this passage, verse 11, where he says, No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Trained by it. He calls it training. Suffering is training. The word training is the word gymnazo, which is where you get the word gymnasium. What is he saying? Life is suffering. Life is a workout. The suffering is really a workout. As a metaphor, suffering is a form of our training, is a form of a workout. And if you get that, if you actually get that, this passage will not be cold comfort for you. It's not just going to be some pat saying. Think about this. When, when Jesus Christ stood in front of Lazarus, Lazarus was a good friend of his, and Lazarus had died, and, it, and, he, and he intentionally waited four days And when he gets there to see Lazarus in the grave, everyone around him is mourning. Jesus did not say, well, you know, you see, it's all training and all things work together for the good to those who love God. That's not what Jesus said. That is pat. That is cold comfort. Instead, what do you see him do? Jesus weeps. Jesus is angry. He's bitter at the suffering, and yet Jesus Christ has an incredibly proper perspective on suffering. And so we need that perspective. When we're weeping, when we're angry, when we're bitter in our suffering, we need a proper perspective on suffering. We need an internal compass. And it's very important because if you don't, you're not going to be able to handle life, you see. The author says, verse 1, life is agony. Life is like a race. But, verse 11, it's going to produce a harvest of righteousness and peace for you if you're trained by it. On one hand, suffering is inevitable. It is agony, but the author says it's necessary. It's necessary for your growth, for your maturity. Why? Think about this. When you walk into a gym, that's training. You walk into a gym. Many of you guys walked into a gym this weekend, right? What do you see? Everyone is there. They're exerting themselves. They're sweating, and they're groaning, and they're struggling. They're on the elliptical. They're on the treadmill. They're on their weights. What's the nature of training? What's the nature of of a workout, there's pressure that is on you. There's stress on your muscles. There's a heaviness. The weights are on you. There's tension on you. It's always, the very nature of training is what? There's pressure and it's always working against your body. The pain is is forcing you to push, forcing you to exert. There's a straining. There's an opposition, you see. There's stress, but just as physical pain Physical stress, physical training is absolutely necessary for your physical growth. The author says, in a sense, your suffering, your trouble is necessary. It's absolutely necessary for the growth of your faith. That's what he's saying. 
In a sense, your faith, your commitment to Christ, your courage as a believer will never grow unless you are tested, unless you are stressed, unless you are challenged. Otherwise, you're going to be a shallow person, you're going to be an immature person without suffering. And it's an amazing thing because it's when you're torn apart, when your body is broken, when your body is shredded, then you are strong. You see that? You get that? When you run more than you're supposed to run, when you run more than you thought you could run, you feel weak. You feel sore. Your body's just torn apart. But that's when you're actually getting stronger. You see that? According to the Hebrews author, if you learn endurance, if you learn humility, and you address suffering the right way, even as you feel like your faith is getting weaker because you're just beaten up and you're persecuted and you're thrown down, your faith is actually increasing. You are increasing in patience. You are going to increase in courage. You're going to increase in your compassion. Suffering is training. Now, the second thing the author says here is that suffering is seeing. Now, most of the pain we experience when difficulties actually happen in our lives, it's not the actual difficulty that gets you first. I've experienced this. I understand. First, it's the shock. First, it's the confusion. First, there's self-pity. First, there's despair over the fact that it's actually happening. Part of the pain is the actual suffering. But in the beginning, it's the shock. There's this inability to process what's going on. Because you see, when you suffer... You don't have the time. You don't have some expert coming to you to prep you like when, you are, when you're in the ER, when you're in the emergency room. At the ER, when uh, a loved one gets into an accident, what happens? You go there and you're waiting in the waiting room and a doctor or a nurse, somebody comes out and they prep you for what you're about to see. And the reason why they do that is that you could be prepared. You will be able to see. You will be able to just be ready to, for the worst. Otherwise, you're going to get weary. Your heart's going to sink. Otherwise, you're just going to lose heart. You're going to fall apart. Now, think about this. If you're not ready, and if suffering enters into your life, you're just going to melt down. You're going to freak out. And the reason why is because you had this view of life. You had a philosophy of life, and that view of life is insufficient to support the reality that you're experiencing. That's why you're falling apart. That's why you're freaking out. But if you enlarge your view of life through suffering, then you can live a big life. Then you can live a great life. You can face great challenges in your life. The cloud of witnesses, Hebrews chapter 11, points to series and series, case studies of people whose lives have become great because they've experienced tremendous suffering in their lives. Now, in fact, Hebrews chapter 12 begins with what? Since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, he's saying they saw a a real reality. They saw a reality beneath the reality, what is visible. He's referencing Hebrews chapter 11. All these case studies of people who've endured because they saw a reality beneath what is visible by faith. They had a different view of life. They've come to a different way of seeing life. And so now, the author is saying, they serve as witnesses to your suffering. You are part of that. You are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. Verse 2, he says, the greatest of these, fix your eyes on Christ. The greatest of these witnesses is who? Jesus Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus. You need to see the ultimate picture of the one who has ultimately suffered, a picture of ultimate suffering. The author says, consider him who suffered. 
what he wants you to do is he wants you to think about him. He wants you to reflect on him, understand, think, and let that shape your view of life so that you don't grow weary, so that you're readied, so that you're prepared. You don't grow weary. You're able to enter into the emergency, enter into the accident, and you will not lose heart. That's how you become great. This morning, what is your view of life? What is your view of reality? What's the reality that keeps you going? Another way of asking that is, what are you living for in your life? What do you see in your life that you're pressing on for, that you're living for? Now, if it's to maximize your love life, then your happiness and your sadnesses will revolve around your love life. You see, your relationships with people around you, your commitments, they're going to revolve around your love life. If it's to maximize your comfort now, then what you're saying is, I don't really see underneath what is visible. I don't see where I'm headed. I don't see where the world is headed. So I'm happy just pursuing what is comfortable today. Then what you're doing is you're really going to just train yourself to avoid suffering, but you're never going to be able to deal with suffering when it comes. You're going to train yourself to avoid suffering, but it's all a lie. You know why? Because suffering's inevitable. It's inevitable. So you need to widen your scope. You need to widen your view, widen your lens, or else suffering will reveal all the structural flaws in your current view of life, in your philosophy of life. You need to see. Now, the third thing the author says is that suffering, as a result, is discipline. Verses 5 through 11, pretty much the latter two-thirds of this passage, he says, when, when troubles come into your life, it's really a part of God's fatherly care. And, and the author does something interesting. He begins the first four verses talking like a coach. He says suffering is training. And then he shifts this metaphor immediately. He doesn't tell you it's coming. He shifts it and he says, it's, it's the discipline of an athlete to being disciplined by your father. Why does he do that? Think about this. When you're going through suffering, and everybody here is going through some form of suffering, when you're going through suffering, which voice would you rather hear? The voice of your trainer or the voice of your father? The discipline of a trainer or the discipline of your father? Because a God is a coach, a God is a trainer, although it is training, that's what the author says, not going to be very comforting. And this letter was intended to comfort. It's a pastoral counsel to God's people who are in- enduring tremendous suffering. Now, religion is this. When you go through suffering, religious people say, you got to suck it up. You got to be tough. You got to grit it out. But the Bible says, yes, you're in pain. Yes, you're in agony. Yes, you're running a race. You are being trained. It's going gonna, it's gonna to help you. It's going to grow you. But do not think of God as your coach. Think of him as your father because he is your father. Look to him as your father. And the reason why I say this is because the word discipline is not, the word discipline shows up many times in this passage. And it's not in the context of a coach's punishment. He literally shifts the metaphor. Rather, the word you see here is pedia. It's where you get the word pediatrics. Verses 5 through 11, that word shows up 10 times, and each time it's in reference to the way a father disciplines his child. What does that mean? It means suffering 
is often a tool that God our Father uses to shape us as His children. Suffering is a tool that God uses to shape us often, to shape us to become more like His children. What's a father? A father is someone who cares for you. A father is someone who cares for you more than anybody else in your life will care for you. A father is someone who's going to care for the overall health of you, the overall growth of you. In fact, a father will be willing to suffer, to take your place in your suffering. That's what a father is. That's what a father does, a good father at least. That's what a father will do. And so if your child is not growing in health, the father is going to feed you. If the child doesn't feed, uh, if the child isn't doing well, the father will do whatever he can to nourish you. The, chi- the father is going to do whatever he can to bring you to health. And if a child is not growing in character, the father will instruct you. The father will discipline you. That's the word that's being used. For example, if a child lies, the worst thing a father can do possibly is to not discipline that child, Right? Because if you don't teach a child the consequences of lying and you just let it go and let it go and let it go, over the course of time, the child becomes a liar. And that's the worst thing that can happen because his soul's going to corrode. Eventually, his life becomes a lie, right? And the child's going to become miserable. Why? Because no one in his life is going to trust him. So what do you do? You discipline him. You instruct him. And that discipline is for the good of the child, for the health of the child, for the prosperity of the child. And that means that if God is our Father as our perfect parent, the suffering that He allows is intentional in our lives. It may hurt you. It may pain you. It may feel like it's going to ruin you, but it's not going to ruin you because He's your Father. He's doing it for your good. And if you view suffering properly, it's going to grow you because God will give what a child needs to be healed from the only thing that's really destroying him, the inner sin the deep-rooted sins in our lives, the deep-rooted disease in our lives. The author says, verse 10, our fathers disciplined us for a little while uh, as he thought best. God disciplines us for the good that we may share in his holiness. And so in verse 7, he says, endure hardship as discipline, as padea. If you don't see suffering like that, you're not going to make it. You're not going to endure it. You're not going to be able to grow. What is fatherly discipline? There's this brokenness, you see, inside us. There's this inner disease. In me, there's a foolishness. In me, there's a pride. In me, there's an arrogance. In me, there's a selfishness. In me, there's a cowardice. There's this lack of self-awareness in all of us. And if it's not addressed, it's going to ruin us. It's going to completely destroy us. God, as our Father who did not design this world to be filled with evil and suffering, brings external brokenness into connection with our internal brokenness at exactly the right place and time in our lives and exactly the right measure, never more, he will never overdo it, at exactly the right measure to move us from blindness to self-awareness in our lives so that you will become transformed to become more like his child. The text here says there are two ways that we often deal with suffering, and they're both improper, but we so often, so easily slip into these two ways. He says, do not make light. That's one way. He says, do not lose heart. 
That's the other way. The first way that we often deal with suffering is we make light of it. We despise it. We mock it. In other words, when troubles come, uh, Hebrews, the Hebrews author is saying, he's saying, he's saying don't say, I'm not going to let this happen. I'm going to beat this. This is going to pass. I'm just going to buck up. I'm going to beat this. The author says, don't do that. Don't do that. That's, that's how worldly people do it. Don't do that. You go up to a child. You discipline your child. You say, did you lie to me? And the child says, yes, I lied to you. So what do you do? You discipline him. You say, go to your room. There's no dinner tonight, and we're going to go out to a movie. You're not going to go to a movie. The child says, no, 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 and he cries and he wails. And what does he say? I won't lie anymore. That's a good thing, you see. That's good discipline because he's not making light of your discipline. He's hurting, and he says, no, I won't do this anymore. He'd probably think twice before he ever does it again the next time. But the thing is, the problem is not all children are like that. Some children are resilient. They're resilient in a bad way. And so when you say, did you lie to me? They say, yes, I lied to you. You say, go to your room, no dinner, no movie tonight. They say, what? Fine. I didn't want to go anyway. I didn't want to eat this anyway. What is he saying? He's saying, you're the enemy. It's your fault. I'm not going to let you beat me this suffering. I'm not going to let it beat me. I'm not going to let it win over me. I'm going to be resilient. I'm going to fight through this. I don't care what you think, right? For this child, you're the enemy. You're the, it's you're the one that's at fault. When really, his sin should be the enemy. He should be hating his sin, but he hates you. He should be hating his lying, but he hates you, you see? So he's resilient, kind of resilient in a bad way. He said, I'm not going to let you see me cry. Remember the movie Magnolia? Very insightful movie, Magnolia. Nominated at one point, I believe, for an Oscar. Tom Cruise's character, right? Tom Cruise, after all the pain that he's endured in his life, he finally approaches his dying father, who he's not seen in years, this father who's damaged him, damaged his family, and he sits there, and you just see him. He looks like he's about to explode. He turns beet red, and what does he say? He says, no, I am not going to let you. I'm not going to cry for you. I'm not going to let you see me cry. One way that we deal with suffering often is that we make light of it. But on the other hand, the text says, don't lose heart. You know what losing heart is? It's falling apart. It's losing it. What you're really saying there is, I can't see any good coming out of this, so there must be no good reason. I can't see any good coming out of this, so there must be nothing good. I can't see how God could be in this, so there must be no God. You see, that's a foolish way that we often uh, lose heart. And the thing is, we often live this way. We live like that. And so when you share with people, it's always in context with the suffering when you cry, when you pray, it's not about your sin. It's not about your idol. It's not about the idol that's being revealed in your circumstance. And so what happens is life starts to corrode and you lose endurance. The Father disciplines us out of his love for us to heal us from that corrosion to make us more like his child. And so receive discipline. Accept discipline. Accept the suffering. It's inevitable, but it's necessary. It's training but it's also used to heal you like a father would use to heal you. He, there's nothing more a father would want than to see you growing healthily as his child. So trust your father because he's good and he's faithful and it's for his glory and it's to get his glory in your life. It's for your good. How do you endure it? How do you endure this suffering? When trouble comes, what do we do? 
When suffering comes, what do I do? I have a couple prescriptions here. First, you got to kneel down. Kneel down. The reference here is Padilla. What God is saying, what the author is saying is that God is our Father. That insinuates what? That we automatically are His children. We're children. Doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter how mature you think you are, doesn't matter where you are in your career, it doesn't matter how wise people think you are. The Bible says here that you are His child, you are children. And that means that until you truly understand the love of the Father, you will never say sorry to Him. Until you truly understand the love of the Father, you will never thank Him, you see. And so what you're going to do is you're going to resist Him. That means we make light and you're going to despair. That means we lose heart. They're all acts of pride. How is despair an act of pride? I mean, isn't despair, it looks like humility, but it's actually an act of pride. Despair says what? I've lost hope. There must be no good that can come out of this. There must be no God behind the suffering. There's no reason for this. And so you fall apart. That's the reason why we fall apart. But a true child does what? A true child says, up, up. A true child says, I need help. A true child says, I need to see. I want to be at your level. I want to see. A true child trusts. A true child depends. It's implicit in being a child is that we depend, that we trust. Kneel down. Submit. The second thing we say, my prescription is put off. Take off. Verse 1, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that's so easily entangled. I'm going to flip back here to the training metaphor. What do you do when you walk into a gym? How do you dress when you walk into a gym? You wear your suit. Women, do you wear heels? Some of you may wear heels. I don't know. Do you wear makeup? First, why do you wear a suit? Why do you wear heels? It's because those things make you look good. Those things make you look shapely. Those things cover you up, right? You put on gym clothes, you look in a mirror, now you know why you're in the gym, you see? Your cover is off. Everything is visible, you see? When suffering comes, don't just quote Romans 8.28, right? It's written in your, call, uh, your word of encouragement. It sounds good. Don't just quote it to sound good. That's pat. That's cold comfort. All things work together for the good to, uh, to those who love God, right? Remember Dr. Pangloss in, in, uh, in the book uh, by Voltaire, the Candide? Remember Dr. Pangloss? By the way, his name is Pangloss. He glosses over everything, right? Dr. Pangloss, uh, he experiences disease and he experiences death and he's torn apart and he experiences storms. He loses an ear. He loses an eye. But what does he do? He always says coldly. It's, it's Voltaire's satirical way of going against the optimists of the world. Because Voltaire knew the world is falling apart. Voltaire saw everything is falling apart into decay. He's living in the enlightened period of the French Revolution. He's saying everything is falling apart politically, systemically, systematically, educationally. He's seeing society in front of his eyes crumble and fall apart. And here is Dr. Pangla saying all things work together for the greater good. He loses an eye. He loses an ear. He's falling apart. That's cold comfort. You know how you're supposed to view Romans 8? We often look at Romans 8 and we say, well, you see, what God is saying here is that um, you've got to hang in there. 
You got to hang in there because if you hang in there, God's going to use these circumstances to bring out a greater good around you. And so I remember this one story of this person who suffered and then you say, look at what happened in the end. They got married, you see? And they always tell these great stories. But that's not what the author is saying here. He's not talking about some happy ending around you like some movie. That's not what he's doing. If you go back to the discipline of a child, you know, did you lie to me? The child says, yes. Go to your room, no dinner, no movie, right? This child says, well, I never wanted to go anyway. I hate that movie, right? Why does he say that? It's because he's refusing to look at the lie. He's refusing to look at himself. So instead, he's looking at you. Instead, he's looking at his parents, Instead, he's looking at uh, the circumstances, the suffering around him, and he's blaming it on you. And, and so when suffering comes, <clears throat> uh, what he's doing is he's using the suffering, he's blaming his parents. When our suffering comes, it's so tempting all the time to blame God, to blame the circumstance, right? We're refusing to look at ourselves. We're refusing to look at the lie. But Romans 8 is saying all these circumstances, God is using it for your good, the good in you. Romans 8, 28, he's saying, uh, you know, our circumstances are being used. God is using them for the good of those who love God, for the good, your good, in you, not just around you. So when suffering comes, what we should be saying is, it's bringing out my fears, the deep-rooted fears. We all have nightmares. Deep-rooted nightmares in our lives. Your suffering brings out those nightmares. The suffering brings out the cowardice. The suffering extracts, brings out, reveals the things that we cling to, the things that we've clung to, not our father, right? The child looking up saying, I trust. We cling to other things that we trust. That's idols. That's what an idol is, the very nature of an idol. The suffering brings out our arrogance and our pride. The suffering always brings out the worst in you, like when you're in a gym. You see how much more you need to go. The cover is off. The author says, I want you to throw these things off. Throw it off. Anything that hinders you, the sin that so easily entangles you, throw it off. The key to life in your suffering is asking, what are the things that God is working in my life for his glory and for my good. Don't dwell on the circumstances. Trust me, I'm a, I'm a worrier at heart. Not a warrior, I'm a worrier. And in my anxieties, it's very easy for me to dwell on my circumstances. But what you should be asking is, how's God shaping me through this? How's God shaping me in this? Is it my pride? Is it my selfishness? Is it my idols? Self-evaluate. Look at yourself throw off the things that entangle you throw off the things that hinder you from seeing those things from seeing your suffering as discipline from seeing your suffering as training and so we have suffering as training we have suffering as seeing we have suffering as discipline we talked about uh, kneeling down submitting humbling yourself before god we talked about taking off anything that is hindering ourselves from seeing suffering for what it really is. Now you've got to put on 
The word endure comes up over and over. Endure hardship as discipline, verse 7. Comes up over and over. And, and the author is saying, don't give in. Don't give in. On one hand, don't resist. That's a different type of making light. But he says, I want you to endure. I want you to persevere. He says, I want you to hang in there. Don't give in. What does that mean? When you suffer, it's your instinct. It's just natural. In our sinful nature, it's natural for us to retreat for a lot of reasons. It's natural for us to hole away. It's natural for us to say, oh, there's going to be six or more weeks of winter, right? So we retreat. What do we retreat from? We retreat from the resources that are actually good for you that will help you. Prayer, community, God's word, sometimes uh, intentional reflection, intentional confession, intentional repentance. We retreat from all those things. The key here is to hold fast to those things. Those are the resources. It's like medicine. Those things are like medicine. The healing comes later. But the prayer is there. The seeking God is there. The clinging to God as our Father, right? Who is nurturing us, nourishing us, feeding us, disciplining us, right? John chapter 15, Jesus says, abide in me. He says, I am the vine, I am the source of life, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me. I am the vine. What does practical obedience look like for you? Cling to Christ, even if it hurts. Cling to Christ. When you don't want to obey, you got to obey. It's, obedience doesn't come in our gospel-centered world. In the gospel-centered church, people think, they're often mistaking, and they think that, well, I think what the gospel does is, before I used to obey, that made me religious. Now I'm not going to obey until I feel like it. That's not practical obedience from a gospel perspective. The gospel frees you to obey. Frees you now to live out the way you've been designed to live out. So even when you don't feel like it, it's a workout. It's training. You obey because you just know that it's good for you. Now, I'm going to speak a little pastorally to you, maybe a little fatherly to you, definitely as a friend. I'm going to say some things. There are some sufferings that are just so horrible, things, some traumas that you've experienced that are so great. Even after it's been a while, the trauma's still there and you're still in shock and you're still in despair. And if you mourn too little, that's pat, that's cold. It's going to harden you. If you, mourn, if you don't mourn enough, you're going to make light of it. That's what you're doing. You're saying, I'm resisting. You're like that child. I refuse to cry. But there's also a thing such as mourning inordinately. And when you do that, you've lost heart. If you mourn too little, right, you're making light of it. If you mourn too much, you've lost heart. You've got to take appropriate time. It's commensurate with the suffering. Whatever the suffering is, You've got to mourn appropriately. There is such a thing. And you know how you know you've mourned appropriately? Your friends. Look around you. Your friends. Close friends. Real community. People who are not afraid to mince their words. People who are not afraid to speak truth, so they're not going to mince their words around you. That's community. They're a good gauge to show you, to tell you if you've mourned appropriately or if you've mourned inordinately, you see. You know what's going to help you? Uh, the Word of God is going to help you. 
It's not going to solve your problems per se. It's not going to give you the answers like a question and answer book per se, but it's going to help you. It's going to help reveal what's inside you. Take time to pray. God's presence. Inundate your, your, your life with God's presence in a time of suffering because you are going to grow in intimacy. What is a father? A father means intimacy and a father means authority. So on one hand, we obey. But on the other hand, we grow more intimate in that obedience. Grow in intimacy during your time of suffering. Inundate yourself with God's presence constantly in your life in this time. That's what you're doing when you're surrounded by community, when you're surrounded by God's word, when you're surrounded in prayer, when you're immersing yourself in prayer. That's what we do. That's what it means to cling to Christ. That's what it means to abide in Christ. How do you do it? The text says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Think, understand, know, reflect, study. Consider him who endured. Fix your eyes on Christ. Look to Christ on the cross. What do you see? Suffering. Suffering. Lots of suffering. Christianity is unique. You know why? Because in Christianity, our God suffered. The invulnerable became vulnerable. That's the meaning of the Advent, the coming of Christ. We're not celebrating Jesus' birth because he was this cute little baby. We're celebrating Jesus' birth because he wasn't born on a throne. He was born in a manger from the beginning of his birth. No hotel would take him. Nobody would take him in. That is going to be the, that's pretty much a picture of the rest of his life, even now. 2,000 years later, nobody will take him in. If you've taken in Christ, you will celebrate the Advent, you will celebrate Jesus' birth, you see. But that suffering leads him all the way throughout his journey on the earth, his spiritual journey, beginning with the manger, total suffering. Homeless, total suffering. The invulnerable became vulnerable. The infinite became finite. God himself became a baby. He didn't become, he didn't just appear as a man, right? Like those Greek myths, right? Like the Roman gods. He came as a baby, totally dependent, totally, he put his life in the hands of human beings who would later on kill him. You see that? You know why we're running this race? It's for, anytime you run a race, anytime you're in a gym and you're working out, Anytime you're running some race, why do you do it? For the joy that's set before you. You're waiting for that prize, that joy. That's our joy. Your view of life has to support whatever it is that you're running towards, right? Your view of life has to support, has to be adequate to support that suffering. So it can't be something general. It has to be very, very specific, even in the midst of the suffering, even in the midst of the circumstances, our joy is what? Getting the greatness of God, getting the glory of God into our souls so that we could become what we were designed to become. There's your destiny. There's your meaning. There's your purpose. But what was Jesus' joy? Jesus was perfect. Jesus was holy. What would, what would possibly be Jesus' joy to come down to gain? He has, what do you get the man who has everything? Why would he come to suffer? What was his prize? Why did he run the agony of this race? 
because he had the glory of God. He had holiness. He had righteousness. He didn't need training to reveal something that was dark in him because he had no darkness. In fact, he says, I am the light of the world. What did he need that he did not have? What did he want that he did not have that was so worth running this race for? And the answer is you. It's us. In Jesus' suffering, he's seeking us. In Jesus' suffering, he's running towards us. And to the degree that you trust that, in your suffering, you will run to him. In Jesus' suffering, you see the love of God. Every father would be willing to take the place of his son. To see the Trinity torn apart on the cross, Jesus Christ enduring the ultimate wrath of God, any father would want to take his place. But what does God do? On the cross, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turned his face from Christ. He forgot about him. He left him for dead. He left him alone to suffer. So God, in essence, died twice because on one hand, the Trinity was torn apart, but God, looking at the suffering of his son, any father, talk to any father, if they see their son dying, it's like they're dying. And they have to live that out over and over and over again. I got to tell you the story. My father passed away. A couple years prior to my father passing away, um, right by his grave site, by diagonal up on the, uh, on the area, the plot of land where my father was buried, there's a child that's buried. Um, he died of leukemia at the age of six. And so right around the time my father passed away, you go to the grave site. Um, sometimes, uh, once or twice, we bumped into the family who's, who are the parents of this child. She died singing hymns. She wanted hymns sung to her as she died. She died of leukemia. Every year when we go to visit my father's gravesite in the holiday period, um, we see flowers. Now, you know, 35 years later, we see flowers. 40 years later, we see flowers by her grave. The parents will never forget. Any father will be willing to take the place of their child in the midst of suffering. But here, Jesus Christ endured even that, the rejection of his father. In fact, the father's pouring out, not discipline, This is not something to make him better, although as a result, it was to exalt him. This is the father pouring out his wrath. Why? So that he wouldn't pour it out on you. That's why you know that the suffering you endure is not punishment. Because God is just. He wouldn't punish you twice for something that Jesus already paid for. You see? That's the justice of God. That's the beauty of God. That's the love of God. That's the beauty of Jesus. That's the lie. This is not cold comfort. Jesus Christ suffering on the cross, he's not just doing that to give you cold comfort. When he says all things work together for the good to those who love God, that's him dying on the cross, suffering his wrath so that your suffering can make sense. You see that? And you may not make sense out of our suffering. There are some things that you will endure in your life. If you haven't endured it, maybe you will. I hope you don't. But there are some things you have endured or may endure that you will never be able to truly explain. But I can can assure you, look at the cross. It is not punishment and is not for evil. It it, it may be evil. The suffering may be evil, but it's not for evil. Even that can be used for your good. when Jesus Christ hung on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God. Notice he didn't call him my father, my father. 
he lost his father. So that the suffering that you endure is the discipline of a father. You can be his child. Jesus Christ on the cross is saying, I want you to give up your idols. I lost my father in my suffering so that you in your suffering would be assured that God's presence is in your life, that you will get God, you will get the father, you will have intimacy with him in your suffering, and you will obey him as your father, as your authority in your suffering. I am seeking you in my suffering. Now will you seek me in, my, in your suffering? I suffered for your sake. Now will you suffer for my glory? Look at the beauty of Christ. Look at the love of Christ. Look at the suffering of Christ. Look at the resilience of Christ. He endured hardship as discipline, you see. Trust in Christ to the end. You can trust him. He is faithful. He is good. Let's pray.